when I would first have something to eat on my ride, I'm generally not hungry or feel like it at all. Like if I'm on a four hour ride and I'm an hour in, I think I've just eaten an hour ago, it's like, but I'm probably going to be hungry in 20 minutes. So if I just have something now, then I'll have something. I like a routine, so I know generally, like if I eat at an hour, then I can have something else at two, then I have something else at three, and then I'm home by four. Hello and welcome to the Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Steph Gaskell. And I'm Alan McCubbin. We are both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each week, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists, and triathletes um, ask. So this can be the stuff that you're talking about in your training, or it might be in your um, recovery nutrition session when you're at the cafe munching away on um, whatever that is that you're munching away on. Uh, and what we aim to do is break it down. Uh, we have a guest speaker uh, or practitioner in part A, and then we have an athlete that uh, adds their perspective, so that's in part B. So today's episode, we are up to episode 39B, how much carbohydrate should I consume during training and racing? And we are lucky enough to be joined by paratriathlete Liam Toomey, um, and we discuss with Liam his carbohydrate needs for training and racing in paratriathlon. We talk about changes that he made um, in terms of his training carbs this year and how that has all gone for him. And Alan and I actually will also take a deeper dive into carbohydrate for training and race day following on from last week's episode that we had with Professor Asker You Can Drop. So we're going to cover in a little bit more detail a recap of how much carbs per hour are recommended for different durations of exercise. We'll take a deeper dive into the concept of relative versus absolute intensity. That can get a bit confusing. Um, and Aska mentioned that in relation to deciding when we may want to get more than 60 grams of carbs an hour. Uh, we'll talk about the different types of carbohydrate and which sports foods and drinks that they come from. We'll cover how we can add the glucose and fructose together when consuming more than 60 grams of carbs an hour. And we'll go into um, how you can actually tolerate and from a practical perspective, carry and consume the amounts of carbohydrate recommended, particularly if you're not used to it and particularly if you're aiming for a high amount. But before we get stuck into all of that, let's find out how our dear and wonderful summariser, Alan McCubbin, is going. I'm good, Steph. <laughs> I'm good, thank you. It's uh, been just a crazy, crazy week just trying to get things sorted out left, right and centre. So nothing really exciting for me to report. It's just been um, head down doing work, unfortunately. 
hopefully yep. you've had a bit yeah. better of a time. I know you were crook last week, but you're feeling better? On the mend, on the mend. Still, um, yeah, just, just getting over it, but feeling much better, that's for sure. Um, yeah, and you did have something exciting happen, Al. Um, I don't reckon we spoke about the um, other day. You got, you know, you've got another participant doing your ultra sodium study so hopefully that's all the participants now yep yeah yeah exactly right so last one um mm. had to delay a couple of the second trials uh, including your own because you got crook but that's okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, bit of an evil laugh there steph um but that's okay it's school holidays so it's actually not a bad thing that uh we're not busy at the moment because i've got kids at home with me so um yeah that's all right we'll we'll get it done over the next few weeks, yeah. and then we'll have data, glorious data to wade mm -hmm. through and make sense of. So it'll be good. Yeah, but that'll be exciting. Yes, mm. yes. Let's um, talk about social media shout-outs and questions because we, we've actually had a had a few this week, yeah. Yeah, quite a few. Um, if we start off with Instagram, we had Joe Walsh. Uh, contact us um, well, as of the day of recording just this morning, but by the time this comes out, it'll be a few days ago. Uh, and he was contacting us regarding last week's episode, 39A, with, with Asuka. And he said, love this, such a clear explanation for the need for different carbohydrate transport pathways. And I totally agree. I think Asuka did a really brilliant job of explaining it all really clearly and simply. Mm -hmm. He says, but now my question is, how do I know what foods contain glucose and fructose and how much of each are in different types of foods? Uh, and also any tips on how to get fructose when you're making homemade carbohydrate drinks. So excellent questions, Joe, and we're going to cover those after our chat with Liam today um, in a lot of detail because that's the sort of the practical stuff that we really wanted to add on following Asker's session, which was really great. Um, there's just a few things we think we need to cover in a bit more detail to make it uh, really clear for everyone. So we're going to do that um, in today's episode. We also had um, Claire Haig, Steph. Yeah, we did. So Claire said, hey, Steph and Alan, love the podcast and recently re-listened and love the episode on carb loading. Um, that was with Jose. Yep. Um, can't remember which episode that is because I'm terrible at remembering the episode. 9A, I think, the off the top of my head. 9A, yep. yep. Um, and she's got a question as to if there's benefit to carb loading before shorter races such as the 10 kilometer distance for running um thanks for the great content you put out each week so i guess we can just quickly cover that one now our yep. um so yeah it, it's um typically you wouldn't need to carbohydrate load for um a distance like 10 kilometers because it's um a, a much shorter duration so you shouldn't be depleting your carbohydrate stores but saying that that's if you're actually entering into that event with a reasonable amount um, so the main thing there is just thinking about what your training has been like leading into um, the event um, and just making sure that you're um, you know just regularly topped up your stores so you don't have to super saturate it um your muscle stores but you just want to make sure you're going in not depleted yeah absolutely i mean i guess I, the way i'd think of it is a bit like a petrol tank in a car you know you can mm -hmm. have it full you can have it empty which is sort of carbohydrate loaded or carbohydrate completely depleted but you can have it anywhere in between those two as well 
And so for a 10K event, it doesn't have to be completely full. You're not going to use the whole tank. But at the same time, you want some there because it's still going to be beneficial. Mm. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, obviously, you might eat a little bit more carbohydrate, you know, leading into that event, particularly, as you said, if you've done a lot of training. So you've been, you know, drawing down on that fuel store. Um, but certainly, you don't need to go to anywhere near the same extent as you would for complete carbohydrate loading. I think Jose was saying in that episode 9A that really if that's events of kind of 90 minutes duration or longer is when there's likely to be a benefit from that sort of full carbohydrate load. Mm, yeah yeah and i guess that's how we think about carbohydrate in training day to day anyway like you know if you've got a big session tomorrow we eat a bit more carbs tonight now we don't fully carb load today for tomorrow's training session but we do eat some more carbs compared to normal and so yeah similar similar scenario here Mm. yeah and i guess you know if you you just think about perhaps some of the negatives could come if you do carbohydrate load if you're not needing to, particularly in a running event um, because obviously when you're carbohydrate loading, you are, um, if you're successful in actually achieving carbohydrate loading, you will gain some um, body mass um, and obviously you don't want that extra weight when you're um, running in in these events. Mm, Absolutely. Cool. Um, Then, Al, we have Facebook. We got some um, feedback on Facebook. Yeah, yes. We had Kyle Dunn, who's um, contacted us quite a bit about the podcast at various times, and he he just saw the preview for Asker's episode last week and said, can't wait to give this one a listen. So I hope you enjoyed and and got something out of that one, Kyle. Uh, And we also had Martijn, who's a uh, a Dutchman from Hong Kong originally, Uh, or from the Netherlands and then living in Hong Kong and now he's here in Melbourne but um, he was saying on Facebook that he really enjoyed the session with Asker obviously a fellow Dutchman said really good simple message a joy to listen to thanks Uh, it did start me thinking though of glucose versus fructose was mentioned but there was a there's a lot of noise out there on carbohydrates uh, things like simple versus complex carbohydrate and then sugar highs and crashes and all these sorts of things you know is that a real phenomenon what does it do to the body? Uh, is it trainable or is it genetic to deal with? Um, it's an interesting you, you ask that, Martin, because Ask has actually done quite a bit of the research in that particular topic as well, um, that there does seem to be some people who get this kind of up and down sort of blood glucose concentration. Um, so it goes up, obviously, after you eat a meal or you have a snack before training, for example. But when you start exercising, your muscles become much more sensitive to the insulin that's in your body to actually draw the carbohydrate or the sugar out uh, from the blood into the muscles. And so what can happen is if you eat a small to moderate amount of carbohydrate about half an hour or so, 45 minutes before training, that starts to get into the blood. You start to get the insulin response and then you start exercising. All of a sudden that insulin becomes far more effective or you start drawing that blood glucose out far more effectively and you can actually get a big drop in blood glucose levels. And, you know, you do see that occasionally. It's pretty rare. I think I've only seen it probably once or twice in my career, Steph. I don't know if you've come across mm. it very much. Mm. Yeah, more rarely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Much more rarely. Yeah. Yep. So it, what was interesting in the work that Asker did on this is he could measure it with blood, you know, blood sugar um, measurements. But what he found is that actually, apart from the fact that they didn't feel like the athletes didn't feel great. They actually still performed just the same um, mm. and it corrected itself fairly quickly after that. Um, but the, the moral of the story was if you want to avoid that feeling, which is is not a pleasant one, 
a couple of things you can do is you can either eat a much bigger amount of carbohydrates, so sort of I think it's about 50 plus grams in that last hit before training, um, or have it closer to training, so like only 5 to 15 minutes before you train, so it hasn't got into the blood by the time you start the exercise, or have it much further down before training, you know, sort of an hour or two before training, so it's into the system, the insulin's kicked in and, and brought the blood glucose back to normal before the training starts. It's having the insulin go up and start to respond just as training starts. It seems to be the problem. And as we said, it only seems to happen in a very small number of people. So, um, yes, it is real, mm. uh, but it's not a major problem and it's quite easily resolved. Yeah, yep. well answered. Cool. And, Steph, you're not sick anymore, so have you been out and about and amongst the people or have you been uh, buried in a computer screen writing a thesis? That's the one. Yep, that latter one. Um, yeah, not not out to the people, leaving them alone for a little while yet. Yep, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. Just until you run five hours for me and and hand in a thesis. Yes. Yep. Exactly right. Then I'll be out amongst everyone. Yep. Awesome. <laughs> uh, so just a reminder to everyone that you can find us on social media at the long munch on instagram twitter and um facebook and you can listen to us on all your popular podcast platforms today's episode our yeah episode 39b how much carbohydrate should i consume during training and races and our special guest is paratriathlete liam toomey so liam is a paratriathlete who i met I'm going to say 20, end of 2018, start of 2019, somewhere around there, I think. Um, it's all getting a bit blurry now. That was pre-COVID. <laughs> Seems like a lifetime ago now. Um, but, yes, I've, he's, he's another triathlete working with um, Daniel Stefano's squad here in Melbourne that I've worked with for the last few years. Um, and he races in the PTS4 category, and his goal is uh, the next Paralympics, which is obviously in Paris in 2024. So, yeah, it's been really great to work with Liam. He was pretty new into triathlon when I started working with him. So it was really a whole new experience with him learning about nutrition for endurance sports um, and, you know, a whole lot of things that go along with that. Um, and we'll talk about it in this interview. But um, one of the things that we looked at particularly this year was the carbohydrate that he was having during training specifically, because uh, as you'll hear, the, the paratriathlon events themselves are fairly short. They don't have a large carbohydrate requirement, but some of the training sessions are much longer and that's where there is potentially more benefit for someone like him from carbohydrates. So we'll talk a bit about why we looked at that, uh, what we did and, and I guess how that all went. Awesome. Um, yeah, looking forward to this one and also looking forward to hearing how it is over in Spain for Liam. Yes, yes, it's a tough life uh, for those guys over there in <laughs> Spain. They've been complaining about the heat while well, I've been complaining about the cold every time I speak to them. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Let's uh, let's get stuck into it. All right. Let's do it. Liam Toomey, welcome to Long Munch. How are things going over there in Girona? Last time I spoke to someone over there, it was ridiculously hot. Has it cooled down a little bit? Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, it is still pretty warm here. It's not as hot. It's not forty. It's low thirty. So it's actually kind of nice, and yep. refreshing after a few weeks of being here. It doesn't feel as hot. But it's a pretty good place to be at the moment. So, yeah, pretty happy to yeah. be here. Nice, nice. And good good area for training, I'd imagine. 
yeah, it's amazing for training, really. Like, there's uh, so many opportunities to just be able to ride anywhere and everywhere, get lost yep. quite a lot, which is actually <laughs> part of the fun. And, yep. yeah, great running trails and swimming. And, yeah, we've got a lot of – it's a, a nice change from the cold, grim Melbourne weather that's probably at home at the moment. So, yeah, yep. I'll take it. Yeah, exactly right. Now, before we get stuck into it, just thinking of Girona, I saw on Instagram just today, actually, I think Emma posted it and then you as well, Yeah, some fireworks going off and then this massive fire and people dancing around it. Tell us what that's all, all about. Exactly. So they have a bit of a, like, it's like a public holiday and a big festival, like a fire festival that sort of turned into a bit of like a religious celebration. And so what they do, the whole town almost, they have fireworks stands throughout the whole city and you can just go and buy them for the couple of days leading up to them for anyone, any age. Um, and we go to this certain park and they have a big bonfire and a celebration and light the bonfire and do a bit of dancing. And then realistically, a lot of us just spend a lot of money to blow up stuff with our fireworks <laughs> that we couldn't usually do at home. So it's a... Yep. It's a real luxury. It's a real luxury to be blowing up fireworks with little children near us that are doing the exact same thing. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a good bit of fun, and I'm really glad that we're actually here for it again this year. So, yeah, I'll take yeah. that. Awesome. Awesome. Sounds like it's a, a planned event now on the calendar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Awesome. All right. Um, now, you're obviously a, a paratriathlete. You compete in the PTS4 category. So can you tell us, I guess, firstly, how you came into the sport of paratriathlon in the first place? Yeah, I sort of fell into it by mistake, to be honest. I was doing a bit of swimming. Um, I started swimming. Like I started sport really late in life. I didn't really start when I was younger. I was sort of early 20s when I started sport and started doing swimming and went to this running clinic for amputees because I'm a lower leg amputee. And I met a bloke there who had been to the Paralympics for triathlon in Rio. Mm -hmm. And he sort of just shaped me up and asked what I was doing sport-wise. And I said, I was just trying to swim and go to the Paralympics and he sort of cut me down pretty quickly and said that I wasn't built to be a swimmer and I should probably scratch that and try triathlon. And right. at the time I really hadn't done much running or cycling like to any regard and I wasn't really doing much swimming in, to be honest but I got like sort of pushed by him really, really softly and gently to do a race that was very quickly like six weeks away and I just thought stuff that I signed up and I did it and I did the race, started 2018, and I suffered through the race. I don't think I really enjoyed it as such, but it was a much more enjoyable experience than swimming in a pool and racing in a pool. And the people were a lot nicer, and I knew a few people, and I'd had a few people try and drag me into it, so they were all there. And I really just sort of got stuck into it from there and realised that I could actually maybe do something with it if I tried. So that's where yep. I've sort of run with it from there, yeah. Yeah, yeah, awesome. And for those who aren't aware, can you tell us what the PTS4 category is exactly? Yeah, so the PTS stands for like paratriathlon standing class and they have a range from two, three, four and five. So I'm a four, so that means I race guys that are lower leg amputees like myself or they're either missing their whole arm sort of from the shoulder or uh, other guys that may have cerebral palsy as well. And that sort of range is limited with five being the, I guess, least impaired and then two being the most impaired. And that ranges in the disability classes there. And then we've also got uh, vision impaired classes that will have two separate classes in itself that race determined on like uh, level of impairment or vision. 
so they have yep. a staggered start mm-hmm. and the same goes for our para try like wheelchair classes they'll have a staggered start related to actually like level of impairment and mm-hmm. mobility and what they can do and function so it sort of is a when we race there's there's about 12 races going on um you know chaos on the day so uh, yeah a little bit of chaos it's actually very well managed chaos uh, which is quite interesting to see how they can stagger it so well that you really realistically aren't uh, surrounded by people constantly because there's so much going on like a hand cycle compared to a tandem bicycle on a race course is very different in what they can do. So, yeah, yeah it's uh, yeah, it's interesting to watch. Most people don't really know what's going on. I don't think we, we do all the time, but, yeah, it's pretty cool. Mm. And I know there's some races where you all kind of uh, are on the course together and other races where it's all quite separate. Mm. Yeah, pretty much. Like it can be really uh, compact some days depending on the course and then other days you may not see anyone, like just depending where you are and how the race is set up. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Now, we mentioned before, obviously, you're overseas at the moment in Girona. What's the plans for the year? Um, what's been happening over in Europe and, and what's what's the plan for the rest of the year? Yeah, so obviously it's the first year back racing internationally for me in a couple of years, which has been uh, nice. I raced in Yokohama and did the World World Series race there in May and then have come over since then. And the plan was to do a couple of World Cup races and, yeah, some series races with obviously the goal being to sort of qualify and race at the World Champs later in the year in November. I've unfortunately had a bit of a niggle, so I had to pull out of a race a couple of weeks ago and I'm sort of just on the mend now, uh, which has been a little bit frustrating, but sort of comes with the territory. And I've got a World Series race in Montreal, in Canada in a couple of weeks, and then another one a couple of weeks later in Swansea in the UK, mm-hmm. and then hopefully do a World Cup in Portugal sort of start of september and then head home and you know all go well start planning for worlds but it's just it's just nice to be racing again and training and sort of i say injury free like i've had a bit of a niggle but to be injury free and be doing a lot and getting back into the swing of things like this process of how we actually usually spend a year as opposed (laughs) to how the last couple have been spent so yep yeah yeah and as you said off air before we started recording, much nicer to be training in the, the summer of Europe than uh, the grim winter here. Yeah, yeah, it makes it a lot more uh, enjoyable and it just has so many more benefits, I guess, being over here in terms of heat, uh, the actual training and just the environment. Like mm. it is, I find it hard to do nothing but train, but some days yep. it is good and does have its benefits. So, yeah, I take that yep. when it comes. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Um and so when you came into the sport, obviously it was, you know, relatively recently um, and it's not like you were in the sport from, you know, 10 or 12 or something like like a lot of people might be. But when you came into the sport, did you know much about, you know, nutrition for training and racing and that kind of thing or and specifically for triathlon or was that something you had to really kind of learn along the way? I actually really didn't know too much about it. Like previously I was like, I'm obviously I'm a qualified PT and have done bits and pieces and like interested in health and fitness and that sort of area. And I was unfortunately a bit of, I guess, a gym bro when I was in my teenage and early twenties. So it's very much chicken, rice and broccoli and like, you know, that sort of lifestyle. And so I was very much more focused on that as opposed to like, 
eating for training and fueling and that sort of regard because I didn't do as much training, obviously. So when I started doing it, I was, yeah, very unaware of what I should be doing or how I should be doing it and when to do it and the amounts. And for the most part, when I started, it was actually quite, I didn't have many problems with it. But as my training load, I guess, increased, I found myself sort of struggling with it more or like the capacity to be able to train at that volume and like intensity because I just wasn't eating. I was eating a lot. I've always eaten a lot. I love food, but I probably wasn't eating the right stuff to be actually fueling for it. So that was the big yeah. thing for me, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so you mentioned training there and obviously that load starting to go up as you sort of got more and more into the sport and um, got more competitive with it. What does your training look like for yourself and some of the other paratriathlon guys in the in the training squad? Is it is it similar to the other guys, or is it modified in certain ways in terms of the load or how much of certain activities that you do, um, or is it pretty much the same? Look, I'd say for where I'm at now, it's fairly similar. Uh, we, I'm obviously not swimming, riding, or running as fast as most of my able-bodied teammates. Unfortunately, I'd like to be, but. I still do a very, we still do very similar stuff in terms of what we do in the pool, uh, what we do on the bike. And for me, I guess the biggest thing that's different is just the run loading. The run loading always has to be, I guess, different when I'm loading so much through one leg and the differences that come with that and the challenges. But as opposed, like on the same note, like I still ride like at a high volume and do between 25 and 30 hours of training probably when I'm at a full week. Uh, which is like a massive increase to what I was doing two years ago. Like mm. when I think about how probably little I was doing comparatively when I was here in 2019 to what I'm doing now, my body's sort of slowly become a bit more robust to it despite a few injuries and niggles and stuff to be able to actually w- take the training load and be able to, yeah, I guess prosper from it. Yeah. So um, today we're talking about carbohydrate during training and um, competition. Um, the the paratriathlon races that um, are typically they're usually earning around uh, an hour or so, I believe, in in length. Um, so is it something you focus on more so in training in terms of your your carb intake and getting a reasonable amount in? Or do you still get in some carbs during a race? So like if you're racing and it's going to take less than an hour, are you still getting in carbs? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we predominantly only do sprint triathlon. So, yeah, it's generally an hour, just a little bit over dependent. Yep. So for me, I think I was very unsure of how I would have eaten pre-race when I started. Mm. Um, like work I've done with Alan like I think I used to eat birch and muesli before a race which um, <laughs> made me wonder why I had gut issues and yeah we solved that one pretty quickly but yeah. I think now I still try and eat carbs just in a better ratio and to what the actual fuel is itself yeah. and I don't actually take on a lot during a race yeah. because it's such a short sharp race and we time trial when we ride as well which is the mm. only time i would probably take something on mm. i'm sort of more, more focused on what i do the days leading into a race and the morning off and sort of just before because realistically like it's more about what i've done before than everything else during the race is almost just a bit of a 
appetizer. It's not the main course. Like everything should have been done beforehand for me, I think. Yep, yep. Um, and so I guess then in terms of your training, um, do you tend to target a certain amount of carbs in training? Um, and if so, how does that change depending on like the type of session that you're doing? Yeah. Um, so I'd say probably like generally when we do longer stuff, I would, I wouldn't have an exact figure, It'd probably be like 20 or 30 grams of carbs, I'd say. Yep. And it's been much more of a focus for me to, I guess, recently look at how much I'm drinking and how much I'm eating on those longer rides and in between sessions and to make sure that I'm actually just, I'm just constantly eating actually, <laughs> like pretty bluntly, like I'm constantly eating and I've sort of built myself up to be able to do that, that I eat a lot before sessions and right after a session and go straight into something at lunch and just constantly eating throughout the day instead of having massive periods where I'm not eating. Yeah. Because I think during, that was the biggest thing is, yeah, go. Uh, so I was going to say, um, like during yeah. your, like if you do a long um, session, say it's um, yeah. on the bike and stuff, how long is, like what's the longest kind of training session that you tend to have? Yeah. Um, so I'd generally probably say my rides can be like long, about four hours, maybe okay. a little bit over, but yep. not, I've done a few longer than that, but nothing yep. really usually generally goes over about four, four and a half hours. Yep. But some days if that three, three and a half hour ride falls right after or before a swim, yeah. that's almost you know like six hours just sort of there in the morning. Yeah. So mm-hmm. yeah, they can be quite long mornings and yep. you just need to keep, keep going yeah. through it from there. And particularly because you guys are training um, three times a day as well. So you've got like an early, yeah. like a morning session quite early on and then you've got a break for maybe an hour or so and then you've got another session yeah. and then a break for two or three hours and then a third session as well. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not just the sessions themselves. I guess it's the recovery in between each one. Yeah. yeah. And in exactly. that session where you're riding for like, you know, four hours or so, um, is that where you're getting in a higher amount of carb per hour? Like do, would you go much more beyond like, you know, 30 grams of carbs an hour or you're just kind of trying to work on that now? I think it's sort of what we've been working on for the past couple of months, but I would say on a four-hour ride I would be almost forcing myself to eat or like making sure to mindfully eat more than I would think I need to. Like when I would first have something to eat on my ride, I'm generally not hungry or feel like it at all if it's four hours in. Like if I'm on a four-hour ride and I'm an hour in, I think I've just eaten an hour ago. It's like, but I'm probably going to be hungry in 20 minutes. So if I just have something now, then I'll have something. I'm pretty OCD as well, so I like a routine. So I know generally like if I eat at an hour, then I can have something else at two, then I have something else at three, and then I'm home by four and I can have something straight away and then I can have a proper meal. So. A big thing for me as well is actually just how much I drink. Like I sweat a lot generally and then being an amputee as well, like I have less surface area to actually get rid of sweat. Mm. So like my sweat is I'm at like a higher, much higher capacity I'd say than my teammates. Mm. So for me like drinking a lot is something that I sort of can't really fault either. So a lot of sports drink and a lot of fluid throughout those rides because I probably don't take – didn't used to take as much notice of that, especially like swimming and riding, how much I was probably sweating. Yeah. 
Yeah, because I was going to ask you next, actually, is what sort of forms are you getting that carbohydrate in? So it sounds like a main source is the sports drink. Um, anything else? Yeah, so I'm not really a big fan of uh, like gels and all that sort of stuff. I'm more, I like food, so I prefer to eat real food. Yep. So I, and I have a sweet tooth, so that really helps. And yep sort of work I guess I've done with Alan and with like just sort of knowing is that I can actually not it's not junk food it's actually really good food to eat while riding is chocolate bars and LCMs and bananas and all that stuff that's really sweet really easy to eat while riding easy to digest and sort of has like an instant sort of effect like really quickly has been good for me because I think I used to be too caught up in um, eating stuff that you know came from a uh, protein store or mm-hmm. whatever that was you know really complex and really hard to chew and eat and mm-hmm. was not enjoyable like yeah. <laughs> half the bit about going for a long ride is being able to eat stuff that's enjoyable yeah so yeah. I've sort of made that a big thing to be able to like, like eat something that I enjoy and that works for me yeah 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 that's good Emma um, hasn't got you on Kit Kat Biscoff chocolate bars or anything has she <laughs> um no i'm a i'm a big biscoff person as well on my crumpets as well in the morning but yeah. i'm more i she finds it a bit odd i think that i eat chocolate bars at seven in the morning but a snickers a, sn- <laughs> oh, a snickers or so a turkish good. delight or something goes down pretty well when yeah. the sun still hasn't come up so i stick with that <laughs> nice nice um yeah and i so it sounds like um you just kind of are constantly eating throughout and it sounds like you probably um, typically are having, do you tend to go more towards the carbohydrate-based foods now, particularly in a high training load? Um, so, you know, like when you finished um, a, a session, you're kind of um, getting in a lot of carbs to help replenish and get you ready for the next session. Yeah, I think... The carbs is a big focus, but I actually also focus on eating a lot of protein as well. Yeah. Like um, sort of I for me and I think stuff we've worked on is just trying to constantly do that as well, like disperse it through the day, yep. like having those higher protein options, whether it be yogurt or milk or like chocolate milk, um, things like that that are just you can get a version that's just standard or you can get a protein version that has both. And it's just that extra little 1%er, so you're actually getting it throughout the day. Mm. And, yeah, I think for me I ate a lot more than I would, yeah, at lunch and at dinner than I think I used to. I probably used to always have a big breakfast but probably slow down through the day, whereas now it's pretty spread out, which, yeah, means that I'm always sort of, yeah, knocking stuff off. Yeah, yeah. And um, and have you been taking that approach to having more carbs during training for a long while or has that just been um, recently? Um, and what were you doing before? What kind of prompted that change? I reckon I was only doing it, I've only started doing it in the last couple of months, mm-hmm. probably three, four months at best. I obviously had a bit of, fair bit of time off last year with an injury so there wasn't much time to trial stuff then. But I think it was more so that I was doing sessions and I was at about an 8 out of 10 and there was this sort of something nagging that was missing a little bit and it probably we looked at it and the only thing it could have been that we could trial was actually just trying to eat a little bit more, especially for like 
key harder sessions. So say if we have a hard brick session to eat before I ride and then after the 45-minute warm-up or the hour to have something straight away before the session starts to get you through that next hard 45-minute block Mm -hmm. and see how that goes, if that actually works and if your gut can handle it and what sort of works best in there. So there was a few little trials there and I just noticed that during those harder sessions especially and the longer stuff, I was able to, I guess, it's one less thing that my head's thinking about or my body's thinking about is pretty hungry because mm. I'm full and I'm sort of satisfied and I'm able to push myself a little bit more. Yep. And I just don't experience, I guess, actually bonking anymore really. Like mm. I don't have that feeling of being like oh, I'm starving. Mm. Like when I finish something, I've always got food and I'm always sort of thinking ahead for that, that I may need. It's better to have more than have less. Yeah, yeah. And did you find that initial change difficult or challenging to do? I actually didn't. Like I think it was a little bit of just an adjustment in my behaviour to it because I could almost sometimes, I could have a decent breakfast and then go for like a three-hour aerobic ride and I used to not actually eat anything if I wasn't that hungry. Yeah. But then it's like I can't, I, just, I actually need to eat something. <laughs> Like despite how much sport drink I have and how hungry I don't feel, I actually need to have something at that period of time. So those little changes was just like changing the way I behave during training and thinking that it's more about performance as opposed to like uh, body comp or anything like that and just looking at it in a different sort of, I guess, perspective. I think it was really interesting too and I remember having that discussion with you at the start of the year, Liam, and one of the things that we talked about was that, I mean, I sort of said to you at the time, oh, you know, we'd, we'd looked at a whole bunch of different stuff in terms of your day-to-day eating and you talked about the protein and adjusting your carbs for the training session, you know, out you know, when you're not training. Uh, and then we sort of went back and looked at it and going, oh, we, we haven't really looked at this in too much detail. And I said, well, you know, how are things going in your training? Do you feel like you're feeling enough? And I, I remember you saying like, yeah, like it feels okay. I don't see a major problem. So we said, well, let's just give it a go for a couple of weeks with fueling more uh, and see what happens. And I think that's when you came back and said, oh, yeah, actually, it does feel better. And I think it's a really interesting learning exercise because often I find athletes will come to a nutritionist or a dietitian or something because they have a particular issue, like there's something that's gone wrong or something that they don't understand and they got a problem they need solving but this was a case probably where there wasn't necessarily like I don't think you perceived at the time there was a a problem so to speak Um, but I guess it's a nice example of just because there isn't a a major problem doesn't mean it can't necessarily be better Um, and I think that's what we found here yeah yeah definitely and I think when we were sort of trialing it was a good time because I had a lot of local racing on so we're able to actually put it to the test while racing which was obviously the main goal and I just noticed, yeah, during those races that I just felt a little bit better. You know, I just was a little bit more focused on the actual racing as opposed to anything else because you think about having a breakfast and then almost not racing for two hours. Like it's a long time between drinks to have something to eat. So to be able to have something right before and then get started, like it was just testing the waters to see what worked. So, I've, yeah, it's been great change for me, I think. Yeah. Um. Any big fails where you've ever, like, not had enough carbs? I guess this is more in terms of your training um, or where you've 
overdone it in your training because you've just gotten so excited with all the chocolate bars you could have and smashed them all within one hour. <laughs> yeah, no, I actually haven't. I'm actually pretty good on that sense. I obviously used to have a few dramas here and there when my training load was upping and I sort of hadn't really done much work on my nutrition to, you know, get to a session and get 100 into 10 100s and not be able to swim anymore like I was just cooked from it. So it's uh, luckily not been the case and I've got so used to because my sessions are so usually back to back that my gut actually handles being able to train through a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Like I've been able I can go for a run or go for a ride and eat a massive bowl of bircher and get in the pool in 20 minutes and swim for an hour and a half and not have any effect from it and you know the same goes for riding and just be able to be a lot like more I guess less concerned with that becoming an issue when I'm like training which is the main goal is to be able to get through training properly. Mm. It's interesting because you know we often talk on the podcast about gut training and you know deliberately eating a bit more of a substantial meal before training to try and get the gut used to it and as you said it sounds like kind of the the fact that you have the three sessions a day has kind of forced you to do that because of the schedule yeah yeah exactly that i'll have those massive meals and then snack between and try and actually a big focus for me that we have worked on as well is actually taking a lot more fluid on like sports drink during swimming because it was something I sort of never really did. And I realise I'm actually probably exerting myself the most when I'm in the pool and I'm not drinking anything or wasn't drinking anything. And now that's just something else that it's sort of added to it where I'm constantly like taking on fluid or like sports drink and carbs throughout that and then can have something like a snack and then go and have lunch. And, yeah, like it's a 15-minute walk from us from our place to the pool from here and I make sure to eat something at the pool and then I have lunch as soon as I get back. Like the walk is the hardest bit because that can drag out. So to have something like straight away and then go home and have a proper lunch is been, I guess, a big thing for me to just be constantly yeah, eating. I don't think I can really overeat too much at the moment with how much training we do. Mm. And is your, do you have early morning, um, like what's your earliest morning session? Well, here we uh, we don't get really do much in. early stuff, which oh, is no. great. Yeah, we get to <laughs> we try and live a European time cycle. Uh, but back home, I would generally be on the bike most days from like five thirty to six, like when we do ride. Yep. And then say swim at ten, and you know run in the morning or in the afternoon. Yep. My days are pretty backed up in the mornings when I'm at home. But here, it's more so do a session in the morning then swim sort of around lunchtime and then do something in the afternoon as well. Um, But, yeah, like I'm different in some ways as well that I prefer to like run easy in the morning without having breakfast, just nice, easy, casual running sort of actually suits me a lot better. It's something I prefer and have worked on with Alan that it's something I can do that's, I guess, just easier for me to just get done instead of and then having the food straight as soon as I get back. Like not (laughs) – not trying to stop eating, but just mm. get up and go for a run, then come back and eat. Yeah, and that sort of works for me because I'd yeah. Whilst I don't get gut issues, I prefer to just sort of run while I'm yeah. first thing off an empty stomach. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, and um, thinking about where you are now, have you had to change the food choices? I guess even just from your fueling during training perspective, now that you're based in Spain, just based off of availability 
Yeah, a little bit. Um, so it's pretty hard to find golden crumpets here. So <laughs> had to make a few little changes here and there. Yep. And I think at first I almost struggled with it a little bit to try and adjust to it. But there's a lot of things that I eat that you can sort of find like high protein and oats and like berries and all the basic things that I would eat generally every day. I'm pretty um standard like i eat the same thing every day yeah <laughs> it sort of just works for me it's easy i don't have to think about it too much i know i'm getting enough in yeah so i don't change it up too much yeah. but i have been obviously trying to live i guess eat a little bit more like they do here yeah. and um i've changed up like some of the i guess specialty foods that they have here i would go for more and instead of crumpets we have found some pretty decent waffles that nice. work as a good substitute yeah which is still like, you know, that same thing, like nice and sort of soft and sugary in the morning before a session. And mm -hmm. yeah, I unfortunately can't carry as many chocolate bars around on my ride due to the heat. Mm. So I sort of had to sub them in for some Oreos, which has been, yeah, a nice little change for something. It's just exactly the same sort of idea. Yeah. Something just nice and easy that I can just have in my back pocket. And yeah, they've been getting annihilated, which has been great. Like it just, it's nice to not have to be so, I guess, structured and rigid. Yeah. Like that was, I guess, a big thing for me where I'd come from, like my background with, I guess, food and training and stuff had been very rigid and very much like this is what I eat, this is what I do. And if it's if I'm not able to eat like that, I'm not going to feel good or whatever. Mm. And now it's a bit more like you can – I know enough and I've learned enough to be able to get by and what I need to do and mm. change things. Mm. So I think that's been really helpful to be a bit more fluid with things and enjoy – yeah, living above multiple good restaurants and mm. gelato places. And, yeah, I like to eat out a bit while I'm here, to be honest. It's yeah. a nice change yeah. from being at home. Yeah. yeah, It's funny you mentioned the cookies on the bike. We were yes. speaking to Sarah Gigante a couple of weeks ago, who's obviously in Girona as well, and she was saying one of the big issues that she had with her on-bike nutrition is that she used to use a lot of muesli bars back home, but they're really hard to get in Spain. And then if you can find them, they're yeah. really expensive. So she was saying, I can't remember what she called them, but they were, I think it's like the Spanish word for cookies, but she said there's this like yeah. whole aisle of, they're basically just biscuits, like teddy bear biscuits mm. kind of thing. Yeah. And um, she'd just buy like a whole pack of those and carry them around in her jersey pocket and hope it doesn't yeah. rain. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty much it. Them and soft lollies and just changing it a little bit. So it's stuff that mm. actually going to manage being in your back pocket when it's 40. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because right. I tried the chocolate bars and they didn't last long. <laughs> so I have to get through them pretty quickly. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we might head to our bonus round now to finish up, Liam. Um, but I think that's cool. be really good to have a look at where things have gone from a carb perspective. But now we're going to talk about a little bit about you away from carbohydrate and away from triathlon probably as well. Yeah. So the first question, if you went back to the end of high school and you had to start down a completely different career path, so no sport allowed, what do you think you would have chosen? Um, that, yeah, that's a hard one. Like my, my high school 18-year-old self was pretty reckless, uh, so <laughs> I probably would have told him to do a few less of the things he did at that point. And, um, it's funny because I've – actually don't have any idea what I would have done at that point. That's a good question. I think where I've come to now is pretty good. I would tell him to just keep doing what he's doing because he'd probably end up somewhere he needs to be. 
yeah, my 18 year old life was not filled with thinking about carbohydrates and (laughs) fueling and sport. It was much different. (laughs) It's a much different lifestyle back then. So yeah, Mm. I think I'd tell him to stay on the path a little bit. You'll get there. Yep. Fair enough. Um, and speaking of thinking about things on the path, anything on your bucket list that you haven't done yet? Um, I would love to go bungee jumping somewhere very, I guess, dangerous. I like sort of extreme things. So I think something like that, bungee jumping in New Zealand or anything like that would be a lot of fun. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Awesome. We um, asked a Jurgen drop who we had on last week, um, actually – because he's a researcher, he went to a conference and actually got to do a bobsled on one of the Winter Olympic tracks. Okay, that's pretty like cool. That. Yeah, although, although he said he couldn't run for four weeks afterwards because he was <laughs> in so much pain. That's great. I'd like to go running with the bulls, but um, I don't think my coach would approve of that as being a safe safe training exercise, so I yeah, might have I to give that so. one a miss while I'm during season. I was going to say post-retirement, I think, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, is there a sport that you've always wanted to try but you haven't had the chance? Um, I think, like, looking at sports now, like, I think it'd be pretty cool to try gymnastics. I think there's a lot yeah. there's a lot to learn and have to be able to do to do that. It's a pretty, yep. yeah, cool sport and talent to have. And just to see how hard they have to work to do that, I think, yeah, that's something I would love to give a shot to. But it's not, a, not, not really my cup of tea, unfortunately. Yep. No, fair enough. Um, favorite moment from either the Tokyo Olympics or Paralympics? Um, look, I'd have to say Paralympics. You know, stand on the side and look after. Like watching my mates Dave, Brian, and Nick Beveridge race was pretty good. Obviously, being teammates and close mates and seeing them there and compete and race how they did was uh pretty cool for me. Like I unfortunately, yeah, was injured during then and so it was good to sit at home and watch them race and see how they did and you know i guess see that hopefully we can all have that experience in a couple of years uh, together so that'll be yeah that was something that i really enjoyed about it all like just to see two mates there doing what we'd sort of been gearing up to do for a couple of years so that was pretty special yeah yeah awesome all right and finally do you live by any piece of advice or motto um, I'm not much of an advice man, but I more so think I've recently have just tried to be a lot more open to saying yes to things in the last mm-hmm. couple of years, hence the saying yes to a triathlon when I hated running and all the things that came with it. I think it's really, yeah, beneficial to be open to things that may not seem that, I guess, exclusive or opportunistic for us because they can actually turn out and a lot of the good things that have happened to me, I guess, in my career in the last few years have been due to the fact that I've sort of said yes when I was umming and ahhing about something. Mm-hmm. So I try and live by that a little bit and see what I can do in that area. Yep. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Liam. It's been great to chat to you, find a little bit about how you know, adding those carbs into your training has, has made a difference in terms of you know, performance in some of those harder training sessions, but then also you know, dialing it back in some of those easier sessions as well. Um, so good luck for the rest of the year. Hopefully the, um, the injury clears up soon and you're, you're back yeah. out there training and, and racing and then uh, obviously hopefully onwards to Paris in a couple of years' time. Yeah, thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. That was 
great um awesome thank you so much liam um so now what we'll do is we'll um sort of summarize what um we've talked about with liam but combine that with um some of the topics we mentioned prior um in terms of summarizing some of the um things that Aska talked about as well that we just want to expand on so i'm gonna hand it over to al and um and then i'll just jump in in a little bit what we really want to do obviously it was a bit of a shorter interview this week was spend a little bit more time I guess expanding on, re recapping firstly, and then expanding on some of the stuff that Asker talked about last week. Uh, obviously, we could have probably chatted to him for three or four hours just on this topic alone, um, but obviously we didn't have three or four hours. So what we wanted to do, yeah, is just touch base, recap a couple of the concepts he talked about last week, and then um, add add a bit more context and some of the practical stuff on top of of the stuff that he already mentioned last week. So I guess the first thing is you're know, answering that question, how much carbohydrate should I have in training or racing? I guess the first thing we need to do, at least for training, is define what the purpose of the session is and whether optimizing performance is the goal of that session. So obviously on race day, that's always going to be the goal. We're trying to do the best that we can. But in training, that's not necessarily the case because the goal of that training might be to deliberately stress the body to get an adaptive response as opposed to trying to do you know the, the maximum possible pace in that particular session, for example. So that's something that we do need to consider is what the purpose of the session is. So as Asuka mentioned, there are going to be some sessions in a week where you deliberately want to push the carbohydrate towards that optimal performance range, um, partly because you want to get the most out of that session, but partly because you're also trying to get the gut used to that. So when it comes to race day, it's not unfamiliar. But as you mentioned, there will also be other sessions in the week where you deliberately don't want to fully support the training with carbohydrate, either because you're trying to get an adaptive response to use fat, uh, or because you just you're balancing like the total calories, the total amount of energy that you're eating in some cases. Um, so there are other reasons why you might want to do that. And if you go back to episode 2A of the podcast, we talked with Dr. Sam Impey about some of those concepts there in terms of fueling before training, but it's also relevant during training as well. So we obviously want our bodies, particularly in, in endurance and ultra-endurance events, to be able to utilize both fat and carbohydrate well. We want to be able to use carbohydrate because it's more oxygen efficient. You can push the pace harder. Um, and so you can you know, get to a, a higher intensity with carbohydrate. But at the same time, you need to be able to use fat as well. So you're not completely and totally reliant on carbohydrate during these sessions. So you need the ability to use both well. And so you can't do all your training carbed up to the max and you can't do all your training you know low carb high fat or, or fasted kind of thing either because you're not going to be able to train the body's ability to use both um, when it counts during exercise so with that in mind we go through and have a look at those guidelines that Asker talked about around how much carbohydrate should i have these are guidelines to optimize performance so as i said they're guidelines they're not rules and they're really there for those sessions where you do want to optimize performance if you look at the official guidelines, um, they currently suggest that you know, if you're doing less than 45 minutes of exercise, well, probably you don't really need any carbohydrate. Um, you probably have you know, a little bit of carbohydrate you know, in the lead up to exercise, and that's probably sufficient. Uh, if it's anything from sort of 45 minutes up to you know, an hour and 15 there or thereabouts, again, the amount of carbohydrate you consume probably doesn't 
really matter just a little bit. Um, and actually, ASCA didn't mention this in much detail, um, but there is um, some research that's actually looked into there might be an effect of carbohydrate on directly on the brain before it's even been absorbed. So there's some sort of sensing in our mouth somewhere that we're aware of. Uh, we don't know exactly what it is or how it works, but it sends, seems to send a signal to the brain and, and tell, tell the brain it's all good. Um, and we can push a little bit harder. So, um, and that's been shown with studies where they've actually done mouth rinsing, where they put, you know, sports drink or something like that in their mouth, swished it around and then spat it back out again. So they haven't even swallowed it and they still get a performance benefit. Uh, and you can do this with um, drinks where you can mask the flavor, you can compare it to artificial sweetener. So it's not just a placebo effect from the sweet taste. There does seem to be a genuine effect here from carbohydrate. So that's up to about an hour and 15 minutes of exercise. If you're sort of going to one to two hours of exercise, then probably 30 to 60 grams an hour, maybe even up to two and a half hours of exercise is probably fine. And because it's at that sort of 60 grams an hour or below, the type of carbohydrate, as Asuka mentioned, doesn't really matter. You can use any form of carbohydrate and we'll talk about the different forms shortly. Then if you're going sort of more than two and a half hours, that's when an increased amount of carbohydrate might be beneficial in a lot of cases. So this is where you might go up as high as 90 grams an hour or possibly even higher. As Aska said, the original recommendations were 90 because their research was 90. But in fact, they picked that value because they felt it was a reasonable compromise between getting fuel in versus um, being practical for people to actually do. And we know um, in some cases in professional cycling, for example, they're pushing that even higher. You know, over 100 grams an hour. Uh, and there has even been examples of people in um, ultra marathon running um, where it's obviously considered quite difficult to do, but there has been cases where people have actually been able to push the carbohydrate intake to those kind of levels, which is um, maybe a little bit surprising, but they've been able to do it. Um, but once we get more than that 60 grams an hour, that's when the type of carbohydrate becomes really important as well as just the amount of carbohydrate. And that's based on those different transporters or channels that um, Aska mentioned that absorb the carbohydrate out of the gut and into our bloodstream. So generally speaking, um, carbohydrates that digest down to glucose, uh, we can only absorb up to about 60 grams an hour. As I think you said, Steph, it can be a, you know maybe a little bit more or less than that for different people, but around that amount. And so if you want to get in more carbohydrate than that, you know, the first 60 grams an hour can be glucose or things that digest into glucose, and then the remainder needs to come from things that digest into fructose. The other thing I wanted to touch on was this concept of absolute versus relative exercise intensity that Asuka okay. talked about, because some people might think, oh, what, what does that mean? What's that all about? So I guess there are two different ways of describing exercise intensity. So if I was to ask you, you know, how intense was your training session today? Well, you might say, well, you know, it was an eight out of 10. So it could be a per perception there. And that's going to be relative because, you know, I could go out and do a ride next to, I don't know, someone who's riding the Tour de France next week. And he could be saying it's two out of 10 and I could be saying it's eight out of 10. <laughs> 10 out of 10. <laughs> um, so clearly it's relative because we're riding along at the same pace. We're doing the same power output. That's the absolute intensity, but yet the the um, relative, relative intensity is quite different. The other ways we might describe that as like percentage of your maximum heart rate for runners or percentage of sort of your maximum of aerobic power for a cyclist, you know, in terms of watts. Um, so there are other ways you can describe it. So when I'm saying relative, it's here, it's relative to your maximum. 
uh, as opposed to relative to body weight, which, you know, power to weight ratio is obviously another way of looking at it. So I guess what Asker was describing here is that, yes, we tend to think of training in terms of relative intensity, my percentage of heart rate max or my percentage of VO2 max or um, my RPE, my rating of perceived exertion, something like that. But when we're talking about actually how much carbohydrate we're churning through, it's actually the, the absolute intensity that matters here. It's the, you know, the total amount of watts I'm pushing, regardless of how easy or hard it is. If it's 200 watts, it's 200 watts, and that dictates the certain amount of carbohydrate um, you're going to use. You know, obviously, some of it will be fat, and that will be different from person to person, but the overall calories burnt will be the same, um, and assuming the mix of carbs versus fat is the same, then the actual carbohydrate need will be the same as well. So, And that's why in elite athletes and professional athletes, this is where the higher levels of carbohydrate intake may be more important because obviously they can push much higher power on the bike or a much higher pace running. Therefore, they're going to be churning through a lot more carbohydrate per minute or per hour at that pace compared to what the rest of us can do at a much slower pace or a much lower power output. Even though we're both working at 8 out of 10, their 8 out of 10 might be burning 300 grams an hour of carbs and our 8 out of 10 might be burning you know, 160 grams or something like mm. that. Um, so that's hopefully the difference and hopefully that makes sense to people. Does that make sense no. to you, Steph? Yeah, you did well because cool. it can it can get confusing. Um, so yeah, I think you explained that really nicely um, yep. by giving that perception of effort example. Yeah, yep. cool. Asker did mention that um, for some of the ultra distance events where maybe the intensity isn't as high, or it might even be um, you know a, a long but slow kind of training session where the intensity is not as high as well. There may be cases where ninety grams an hour is actually overkill. He kind of mentioned about four and a half hour marathon pace as being around that kind of pace. Um, if we look at what that sort of equates to on a bike, using some maths, you can kind of convert um, running speed into calories burnt per minute or per hour, and then you can convert that into watts in terms of power output and then using you know different um, mechanical efficiency on a bike. You can work out that it's going to be different depending on um, the weight of the athlete because when you're running, energy expenditure is different depending on your weight, but it's probably somewhere in the vicinity of 120 to 170 watts on the bike. So if you're sitting, you know, uh, below probably about 170, 160 watts, something around there, then probably that 90 grams an hour may not necessarily um, be that that helpful to you. That, that might be a little bit of overkill, just to give you a, a rough idea of that kind of translation. So now, Steph, we thought probably the next best thing to talk about is those different types of carbohydrate. We talked about glucose and fructose and the transporters, but then people will say, well, what does that mean? Like if I have my you know, Gatorade or Powerade or Goo Gel or whatever it is, different products or um, you know, a banana or rice cakes, like, well, is that glucose? Is that fructose? Or is that something different again? Mm. So I guess if we go back you know, fundamentally to describing what carbohydrate is, it's basically starch or sugar. Um, and then the starch is basically just sugar molecules joined together into a long chain. So the starch we think of as things like the starch in bread and rice and pasta, um, potatoes, these kinds of things. And so that starch, when we, when we eat those foods, gets broken down, it chops that chain down into its individual links, which are basically um, sugar molecules. So all of that starch, when we eat it, whether it comes from rice in rice cakes, whether it comes from um, 
you know, pasta or bread or anything like that, by the time it gets down to our small intestine, it's actually broken down into the individual sugars. And there are actually only three individual single unit sugars and they're glucose and fructose that we talked about in last week's episode and another one called galactose which doesn't really get talked about very much and that's because it only really exists as one half of lactose um, and so it only really comes in dairy products which obviously are not very commonly consumed during exercise so really it's it's the glucose and the fructose that we're talking about so Pretty much the vast majority, um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Steph, but the vast majority of starches that we would eat in food, um, the ones I mentioned before, are all going to be broken down pretty much into glucose. Uh, and the same goes for maltodextrin, which is basically just a, a slightly shorter chain compared to other types of starch, but it's still all glucose. Um, so you're not going to get any fructose from any of those things, which means that when you're going for your savoury type of sports nutrition options, generally they're going to be pretty low or have no fructose in them. Correct. You're going yep. well. I'm not, right. um, not <laughs> you're not jumping interfering in. yet. No. Yep. Um, <laughs> and then we talk about the fructose. So fructose is one of those single unit sugars. So we can get fructose naturally occurring in certain types of foods. Things like honey, for example, has um, some fructose in it. Uh, things like um, certain types of fruits, particularly. I mean, all fruits will have some fructose, but the ones that have quite a lot of fructose will be things like apples and pears. Um, but even things like bananas will have a little bit of fructose in them. Uh, and then the other places we'll get fructose is when it's been deliberately added, obviously, into gels and drinks and things like that. But also just normal table sugar. It's probably the most common form of fructose that you're going to get. So uh, we had the question uh, around, you know, how do I get fructose into my homemade you know, DIY sports nutrition products? Well, you can buy pure fructose. Uh, and put it in that way. It's sometimes sold as fruit sugar or just as fructose. Um, but you can get it by just buying normal white sugar. So normal white sugar is actually what we call a disaccharide. It has two molecules joined together. So it's not a whole chain like the starch, but it is two. It's one glucose and one fructose joined together. And when we eat these, you know, when we eat normal sugar, it'll break down and split that into one glucose and one fructose. So it's going to have that sort of one-to-one -one ratio. So a lot of the, um, so if you want to get fructose, you can either get it from pure fructose or from sucrose, which is normal sugar, um, or from, you know, some of those foods that naturally contain it as well. And if you want glucose, you can get it from glucose powder in its most sort of pure form. You can get it as one half of sugar, sucrose, or you can get it from any of those different types of starches of any different length, whether it's rice pasta bread or something like maltodextrin um, which behaves kind of like a sugar but it doesn't taste sweet at all which is why I know Steph you and I use it quite a bit particularly with ultra runners because you can pack in a whole bunch of glucose in there without yeah. the sweetness yep exactly mm. yep um yeah have I missed covered... anything no you're covering that pretty good so far all right and so just coming back to the, the carbohydrate we talked about the different types there uh, different sports drinks, gels, bars and things will have different combinations of these. We talked briefly with Asker about that kind of two to one ratio that was kind of touted as the magic ratio, you know, 10 years ago, sometimes still is now. Um, and that was generally where um, the, the product will have enough, you know, combination of maltodextrin, glucose, sucrose, fructose, you know, any of those kind of products that will end up by the time it's digested in your small intestine as having two grams of glucose for every one gram of fructose, hence the ratio. But 
different products will have different ratios. If you're not sure, you could look on the nutrition panel. A lot of products will actually outline, you know, of the carbohydrate, this much is glucose, this much is fructose, this much is maltodextrin, whatever it is. But not every product will do that. Sometimes it can take a bit of detective work, Steph, to figure out from the ingredients list actually how much of each of those is in there and then working out, okay, well, this one is just glucose. This one actually is going to be half glucose and half fructose. This one's only going to be fructose. It can be a challenge sometimes. And even sometimes with us, we have to go back to the manufacturers to get enough information to figure that out. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, just that. And I think it's, I reckon it's probably gotten a little bit better, a little bit clearer with um, particularly sports nutrition products, whereas before, um, they might make claims, but it was very difficult to actually see that in the ingredients list. Um, mm. So for sure, I think um, and you can very easily get confused and find it difficult to find out that information. Um, so I think if people are getting a headache from trying to work that out, well, then I guess um, see a dietitian because they'll be able to help you with that um, yep. in terms of working that out. They'll have all that data, particularly if they're, experienced in that area mm. and one little trick that you can use if the only two carbohydrate ingredients are maltodextrin and fructose mm. Mm. in certainly in australian food labels it might be different in different countries mm. you'll get the total carbohydrate and then you'll get the sugars value mm. the sugars value will be the fructose because fructose yep. is a sugar mm. in australia maltodextrin is not labeled as a sugar so the difference between the total carbohydrate and the sugars value is the amount of maltodextrin yeah Exactly. So that's a um, nice easy way to work it out. Yeah. And then I think if you are in the US, um, you may have products that do have um, more fructose in them compared to what we have over in Australia. So, you know, the Coca-Cola's over there have the high fructose corn syrup. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And that's still a mixture of glucose and fructose, but I believe yeah. the, the ratio is a little bit different compared to our normal table sugar that we yeah. have here yeah, yeah. exactly um, and yeah if you need to make it uh, a bit more simple um, in terms of you during exercise intake um, then you can make the products um, yourself like Al said um, that's where you can make it really easily um, you can get maltodextrin you can get glucose you can get fructose you can get dextrose um, sucrose um, and you can then um, be in a bit more control um, in terms of the, the quantities of those. Yep and dextrose if anyone's wondering is just pure glucose powder. Glucose. I don't know for yep. some reason the food industry could just call it dextrose when it's, I think it's sold just, as a powder. Isn't it the the structure of um, oh, probably. Yeah. yeah I think it's just the structure mm. change. Yep. Yeah, but it's pure glucose. Yeah. Yep. Okay, and then our final one, Steph, uh, and I'll let you start off with this one, how to tolerate consuming the recommended amounts of carbohydrate, particularly if you're not used to it. So if you're not used to having more than maybe 15 or 20 grams an hour of carbs and all of a sudden I'm hearing this recommendation that I should mm. be having 70, Yeah. how on earth do I get from 20 to 70? Yep. That sounds a bit overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah, don't do that big jump, which a lot of us can do. Maybe for a few, a few people it might work out okay, but um, usually what we'd recommend is um, remember that it's a guideline um, and even though it could be based off of good research that's out there, um, we still need to individualise everything. Um, 
because everyone is different, responds differently. So what I would do is um, just there's a number of ways you can do it. You can either um, start by just doing a gradual step up um, with your carbohydrate intake. So you might, if you're only getting 20 grams of carbs an hour, um, you might just build that up to being 30 grams of carbs an hour um, and just gradually increase the intake. Um, if you're wanting to try and do a bit more of a gut training, um, then you might want to um, do a bit of a big jump, um, but not do that necessarily all the time. Um, but we'll we'll cover that in more detail when we we're going to do an episode out on um, specifically on gut training. So mm. so we'll c- cover that in more detail. Um, but I think just in in this episode, what we, we would tend to say is just um, for this, just make that gradual um, change. Um, so chip away at maybe 30 grams of carbs an hour, see how that feels, see if you notice a difference, um, a benefit, um, and then um, the, the next week or a couple weeks after then um, in 10 to 20 gram increments is what I'd tend to do. Yep. Okay. And then our final question, uh, and we talked a little bit about this with Aska, but just to recap, if you're a runner, for example, and you're like, well, how on earth am I going to carry 90 grams an hour of carbs when I'm running, particularly if it's not race day where I've got aid stations everywhere, how am I going to do it? Mm. Yep. I don't think it's that hard. Um, uh, if you if you um, think about it, um, so um, like I would easily do it in my training sessions and I think I mentioned that. Um, so it, it's just a matter of, of planning it out. Um, and then, you know, obviously if you're trying to do it all through food and like real food, then, yeah, your, your bag weight may become quite heavy, particularly if you're out going for a run for, you know, five, ten hours, um, then, then it will probably be a challenge. Um, but then I'd say use a mix of... Um, of difference so um you know you might have a few hours of more simple to digest uh types of carbohydrate options and then you might have some more real food options um but i guess as a an example of how easy you know getting 90 grams of carbs in um is like i can just get some powdered um might be a powdered sports drink um, or I might make that mix myself out. So um, I might get, um, you know, um, the powdered weight of maltodextrin and fructose, which is just in a small Ziploc bag, doesn't weigh that much. Um, and then so I fill up my hydration, maybe I fill up my hydration bladder or my soft flasks um, with concentrated um, sports drink. Um, and, then, um, and then when I need to top up, then I've got my powdered, in my Ziploc bag and I just tip it in um, and then all I need to do is have access to water um, so you know that's quite easy um, and then you know you might use more concentrated forms so it, it may be for some people that's through um, gels or, or lollies um, but then if other people prefer the sort of more real food options you can do that too you can get your um, your baby food even um, you know, and put that in squeezies. Um, you can get fruit, you know, like um, fruit bars. Um, there, you can get wraps, etc. It's 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 not that difficult. Um, so 
I think just plan it out. It's more people probably just get shocked because maybe they they haven't got it so well planned um, or maybe they don't have access to water, but then that's what you're then going to have to plan out. Mm. So I think the first thing there, and um, you sort of mentioned that in terms of the drinks that you make up, is that the 6 to 8%, like your typical sports drink mix, you're going to struggle to get 90 grams an hour of carbs mm. if that's what you're drinking. Yep. And that's why, um, obviously, you're taking that base mix and then adding extra maltodextrin to it. So you're adding carbohydrate without adding any additional sweetness to yep. it. So it doesn't taste any sweeter than it was originally at that 6 to 8%. But yep. then you've obviously got different products that are, you know, some of the newer products on the market that were deliberately designed to be made as more like a 15 or 16% mix because they mm. were intended for people who want to get 80, 90 grams an hour of carbohydrate. You know, Morton is an example in the most, you know, more marketed in the running area. Um, and then things like SIS beta fuel has been more marketed in um, professional, you know, through professional cycling. Same thing. You know, they were trying to achieve those higher carbohydrate intakes and so they've made this 15% mix so instead of getting six or seven grams of carbohydrate for every 100 mils of fluid that you drink you're now getting 15 or 16 grams mm -hmm. of carbohydrate um, so all of a sudden you you know you've got more than double there and it just means that you're then reliant less on having to have extra whether it's gels bars solid foods or whatever you're taking with you um, and I think the other challenge there is that you know, probably you're describing probably more a typical ultra runner setup, Steph, where you've got mm. a hydration bladder and pockets mm. galore and all that kind of stuff to carry things in. Mm -hmm. um, whereas there's probably going to be a group of people that maybe want to get to this level of carbohydrate intake. They might be like, you know, running or, you know, doing run training for, say, a 70.3 um, Ironman, you know, it's a half distance Ironman or. Um, so, you know, marathon runners that are running kind of three hours, three and a half hours, something like that, that might want to get that amount, but they're not used to carrying that sort of stuff with them and carrying a pack with them. Um, and so in those cases, I guess, maybe ask a suggestion of setting up a like a run course for your training that goes past the same point multiple times where you can securely store something might be the other way to go. Yeah, and I think um, that important point where you've mentioned and Aska mentioned, like we talked about it with him as well, is um, that people commonly still have that belief that they need something that's 6 to 8%. Um, mm. But in actual fact, you know, um, having higher amounts, um, you know, is not necessarily, um, you know, detrimental um, and often we're actually consuming a higher concentration anyway um, of, of carbohydrates. So, um, yeah, often what I tend to do with athletes that, you know, we work with in terms of Ironman is maybe they're doing a five- or six-hour bike ride and they don't want to carry so much, but then that's where they concentrate the carbohydrate in the um, drink bottle um, you know, and then put markers on there in terms of, okay, well, this is 90 grams of carbs um, and then have the other bottle as being um, water um, and, um, and, and you know, and doing it that way as well. So, um, yeah, I think that's where people might get stuck. And I guess to put it in perspective, if you want to get 90 grams an hour of carbohydrate in and you're drinking, say, 800 mils an hour of fluid, which is a fairly mm. reasonable intake, mm. um, you know, by definition... The overall mix, by the time you add in all the bars, gels, drinks, water, everything into the mix, and it all mixes together in your stomach, as Aska mentioned, because it's not like these things go in mm. to different exactly. places. They all go in the same place. Um, by definition, that's 
going to be an 11 and a bit percent mixture of yep. carbohydrate to fluid. Now, it doesn't matter whether that comes from, you know, a more diluted drink like water or a 6% carbohydrate and then some gels and bars and things which are very high concentration and then they mm. mix together to the 11% mm. or whether you just have a fluid that is 11% mm. and that's all you take, the mm. end result is going to be the same. Yep, yep, exactly right. So, yeah, not not that not that challenging. It can be done. You just need people just need to practice it, which we'll talk yep. about. Yep. yep, absolutely. And I think it's just that dedication to it, just like any other form of training. If you want to train yourself to have that amount of carbohydrate, you've got to put in the effort, just like you need to put in effort to get better at, I don't know, sprints or mm. endurance efforts or, you know, whatever it is. Yep. And a final thing to think about in terms of carbohydrate, which is more around the practical side of things, is to think about the planning, how you're going to remember your plan. Aska mentioned last week trying to keep it as simple as possible, but he also talked about a few different strategies that you can use. So you can have like a wristband that you write your nutrition plan on, might be a way to do it, particularly if you're running, you like triathlon when you get a transition from the bike to run. Or if you're on a bike, you can uh, have a sticker that you put on your top tube that has sort of a, a detailed um, itemized list of your nutrition plan there. Um, you might have seen... Uh, on social media lately if you're a cyclist uh, i think matthew vanderpoel at the tour of flanders this year had a, a sticker on his top tube and you know they've always had these stickers with sort of the key you know uh, of you know parts of the the route you know at this kilometer there's a climb or whatever it is but they're adding in little symbols at certain times to remember to have certain foods or drinks as part of their nutrition plan so they can be sort of useful ways of doing it the other thing that i really like and we didn't get time to talk to Asker about this last week but the um, I can't remember the name of the company that sponsor Yumbo Visma, um, the nutrition products that they have. They've deliberately created all their products into kind of um, standardized quantities of carbohydrate. And so this can be really useful from a planning perspective. So they do everything, I think, in blocks of 30 grams. So one gel is 30 grams. Um, one drink, depending on which product it is, is either 30 grams or 60 grams. And so you can have units. So you have one unit is 30 grams. So depending on the training session or the particular day of racing, they can say to their riders, okay, you need to have one unit per hour or two units per hour or three units per hour, depending on the situation. So they're either having 30, 60 or 90 grams an hour, or possibly even maybe four units, 120 grams an hour as well. Um, but by having all of the products that they're consuming in these sort of standardized uh, amounts, I think there's bars maybe as well from memory, um, then it's very easy to know how much you need to get and how much you are getting and you can substitute things in and out. So you don't feel like that one this hour, well, I know I've got something over here that's exactly the same amount of carbohydrate and I can quickly swap that out. So for the rest of us who don't have access to products that are in that um, vicinity, I guess we can set up something similar even with DIY nutrition products is to try and create a situation where maybe our bottles of drink, um, you might do 20 gram increments. Uh, might be 40 grams, for example, in a bottle or 60 grams in a bottle. And then you might have other products like muesli bars, bananas, gels, these kind of things that are around that 20 grams. So they may not be exactly 20 grams. It might be, you know, this one's 18 grams and this one's 22 grams and this one's 24 grams, something like that. But if they're roughly around that 20 gram mark, then it's easy to kind of mix and match and go, you know what, I don't like that particular option that I was going to have this hour. So I'm going to have this one instead. And I know it's going to be about the same amount of carbohydrate. It may not be exactly the same, but it's probably close enough um, most of the time. Yep. 
And I, I think that's it as well. And people often will be like, oh, no, that seems, you know, way too much just because they aren't used to it. Um, mm. And it will seem like a lot and maybe really sweet, but you just need to stick with it and train with it and your body does get used to it. And, um, yeah, but but it's like we say, you need to train. Um, you need to train it. Yep, absolutely. Awesome. I reckon you've done a good summary there, Al, as always. Um, so hopefully that's helped um, provide some answers to the questions that we had by listeners and just help expand on what Asuka was um, saying just with some more pra- practical messages there. So next episode, we are up to number 40. Uh, so it's 40A. And this one came out from a, a question we had from a listener, Lionel Worth, um, and we've um, framed the question, is fibre my friend or enemy? Um, and this is really going to be a hot topic, I think, because um, it's a common question that we get um, our, um, and it's something that we see, um, you know, athletes may... Um, experience negative effects if they perhaps do get too much so um, we're going to talk about that in detail what is um, too much what's not enough um, why do we need fiber um, so yeah and and the practical aspects of it yeah and I hope by the end people will realize that we're not uh, telling people to eat no fiber and compromising people's health there's still health yes. benefits to be got from fiber Definitely. but it's about getting the right amount but not too much that Goldilocks effect again yeah. <laughs> so we'll have you talking about Goldilocks. Um, and um, yeah, as always, please send us through your questions because um, as you've seen, we do include them um, on the podcast in episodes uh, and we'd love to have some more that are relevant to you. Uh, and so please send them to us and you can contact us via your social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at The Long Munch. And we'd love for you to um, subscribe to us if you enjoy the episodes um, and or share it with your friends. Other than that, Al, I think we'll say goodbye for now and we will see everyone next week. Yep, we'll do. See you, everyone. <laughs>